Thank you so much. Okay, let's get started. Um, so it is my pleasure today to introduce Dr. Melissa Mata. So she is in our neurology department. She did her training for medical school and her master's in public health at GW before doing her residency and fellowship at Johns Hopkins. She's going to be talking to us today about encephalitis. Can you guys hear me okay? Is that good? All right. So at, at first, when I said I was talking at this conference, um, I got a few raised eyebrows. Encephalitis seems like a very focused topic for a critical care um, sort of core conference. But um, hopefully I can convince you that it's really exciting, it's really fun, and it's important for the ICU physician. Um, there's really, um, the, it's really one of my favorite things to take care of, not because I'm a geeky neurologist, but because it's really at the confluence of critical care, neurology, the diagnostic workup, and the, um, the exciting part of thinking about a differential and, um, and taking care of patients. Um, most of it is really supportive care, but, the, um, but there's lots of exciting things to, um, to talk about. Um, and, um, uh, these are sort of the key points, which, as I just mentioned, uh, encephalitis does pertain to critical care medicine. About 25 to 60% of cases with encephalitis end up in an ICU, and the mortality is high when they do, 20 to 30%. Um, about half patients really never receive a diagnosis, which is another sort of mind-boggling thing. You know, we, we work really hard at taking care of these patients. Usually they're young, um, and they're very sick, and half the time... Uh, we don't really know why they're sick or what the pathogen that affected them was. Um, so that can be um, interesting, frustrating, although I'll tell you about some new developments that might change that. Um, and, uh, and so this is the outline of what we're going to cover. Let's try to very quickly speed through just what we're talking about and sort of define that encephalitis, encephalitis versus encephalopathy, which is a more bigger term, and where meningitis falls into all of that. And then a little bit about the epidemiology of what we know, um, the California Encephalitis Project, which some of you might be familiar with, which is now 20 years old, so it's really of sort of historical significance, although important. Um, and then really briefly mention the most common um, causes of encephalitis, both infectious and autoimmune, um, and spend the latter part of our talk on some management. How in, par in parallel we work on the differential diagnosis and arriving at a diagnosis and at the same time provide the critical care necessary. So, um, so really, um, encephalopathy is the term that we is a clinical syndrome, the term that we use to define someone with altered consciousness or altered mental status. And encephalitis is brain inflammation. That seems silly, but I just kind of wanted to um, state that up front. And then, of course, encephalopathy is this broader term that was very common in the ICU, and there's a, a bazillion reasons why someone might be encephalopathic. Um, and the tricky part is trying to weed, weed out the patients that have actual brain inflammation and treat them um, accordingly. And so hopefully we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, meningitis is inflammation of the covering of the brain, and the CSF profile is usually inflammatory, cellular, high protein, et cetera. Um, the prognosis is usually very good. Um, in many cases, uh, we, we don't really come up with a pathogen either, but because the prognosis is good, that's really irrelevant. Um, and so we call this a septic meningitis, which is probably some kind of virus that we just really can't test for or don't know how to identify. 
And then there's encephalitis, which is inflammation of the brain parenchyma itself. Uh, and this is a much more serious condition because it can cause brain injury, and in many cases it does. Um, and then we use the term meningoencephalitis because most of the time when people have encephalitis, by extension, they have inflammation of the covering of the brain, so they have meningoencephalitis. Sorry, just not to be basic, but just to clarify all that before we start talking. Um, there is a, there's a, um, the, because this is a heterogeneous group of diseases, um, and there was such difficulty arriving at some diagnosis of etiologies, um, the, um, the folks at the International Encephalitis Consortium a few years back came up with a case definition. And so um, there you have it. Um, um, yes, you need the major criterion, which is alteration in level of consciousness, um, which cannot be explained by some other circumstance. And then you have some minor criteria, which include, which include fever, seizures, a focal neurologic deficit, um, a CSFPOcytosis, some kind of abnormal brain imaging, or abnormal EEG. And you need two of these um, to have possible encephalitis, and three for probable. Um, and so, you know, it sort of allows you to think about this in an organized way. Um, and so, so there it is. Um, so just very briefly about epidemiology, it affects um, patients of all ages worldwide. It tends to affect, it tends sort of, encephalitis is in the brown. Um, it tends to affect, uh, oh, here we go. There we go. It tends to affect younger people more, but it's really uh, at all ages. And um, there was this very nice study now uh, done a few years back that used the national nationwide inpatient sample um, to look at all cases of encephalitis hospitalized between 2000 and 2010. Um, and uh, and um, it, I think it's really informative to see what's happening in the United States. So um, there were approximately seven per 100,000 patients hospitalized with encephalitis per year. Um, there's really very little gender differences. Um, they tend to, uh, uh, the patients that are hospitalized tend to be at the extremes of age, the young people and, um, and older folks. And then on av the average age was 45. And there's no regional variability. It sort of happens all throughout the United States. Um, then um, another piece of interesting information that we gathered from this is, as I mentioned, um, about half of the patients we identify a known cause. Um, but in many cases, 47% of the cases, we don't really know what caused encephalitis. Um, of the patients that have a known cause of encephalitis, 25% of them, quarter of them are viral. And of the viral cases, the predominant majority, the majority of them are HSV, followed by VZV, enterovirus, and uh, arboviruses. And then there's a smattering of other things, and then other, we don't know. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, the California Encephalitis Project was the first major effort that tried to categorize and really dig deep into trying to diagnose uh, the etiologies of encephalitis. Um, the way this worked is that um, if you as a first referring physician had a, a patient with encephalitis of unclear etiology, you made a referral to this laboratory and you completed a case history. Um, each patient received a core battery of tests uh, which um, which included sort of the, the 15 most common causes of encephalitis. And then based on the exposures, the history, the clinical context, um, additional testing was performed. Um, and so they did um, the most thorough 
possible evaluation, you know, because so oftentimes when we're faced with these cases, we think, well, maybe I just don't have access to all the testing. Oh, if I could send this sample here or there, um, then maybe I'd get an answer. And the truth of the matter is that um, even when a very, very thorough evaluation was done, um, in 62% of the cases, there was really no explanation found. Um, and then here's, obviously, the sample is a little bit... Uh, uh, it's biased because of the, the nature of the way the study was done. So obviously, um, you would expect the HSP to be higher because um, because that's a lot more common than, than reflected here. But obviously, if the if the physician found an answer, they weren't making referrals to this um, uh, center. Um, and um, and then the one thing I'll, I'll note here is that 58% of the patients needed an ICU admission. What I really like about this study is the first time that someone really tried to organize this heterogeneous group of diseases into profiles that then allowed us to really um, think about etiologies in sort of categories and also think a little bit more about outcomes. Like, for example, they found that in patients that had diffuse seroedema, the mortality was really high. Um, and in patients with intractable seizures, the mortality was not as high, but their length of stay, the time they were in the ICUs, struggling with that was pretty high. Um, one thing to note, uh, and, and I think I, I sent this to Andy, which is a nice New England General Medicine paper um, that talks about uh, the different profiles, and I'm not really going to go over it, but you have it as a reference. Um, and finally, um, I really like this figure. I like to show it because it, um, it, it shows you that um, here you have the, the number of cases and the number of whites in the CSF along the bottom here. In the red are the non-infectious, so it's obvious that if you don't have very, if your CSF is not very cellular, it's less likely to be infectious. But when you get into this viral and bacterial area, you can see that um, you could have a viral infection with greater than 500 um, and or a bacterial infection in the 0 to 5 range. Um, and again, this is a biased sample, but, but, um, but remember not to anchor yourself on, on those numbers too much. The CSF is one in a number of, of, of pieces of data or paraclinical data that's um, important in trying to figure out what the diagnosis is. Um, the one thing I'll say is that um, up until about 12 years ago, we had no idea that autoimmune encephalitides existed. And so those weren't really tested for at the time that these uh, initial uh, studies were done. Um, and then back in 2007, um, uh, Carol Glazer and the rest of, of the team that did the initial project went back and started testing people for NMDA receptor antibody encephalitides. Um, and they really found that um, the uh, prevalence of NMDA receptor encephalitis was comparable to viral encephalitides. Um, so that, that was a big blind spot that we've only come to recognize um, in the more recent past. Um, and in fact, well, if you live in, <laughs> so you can see when we started, so in the, if, if you, this is the study that was done of patients who live in Olmstead County, Minnesota, which is where the Bayo Clinic is. And so if you live in this county, um, after we started testing for uh, autoimmune encephalitides, you're more likely to have an autoimmune encephalitide than you are to have an infectious encephalitide. Um, um, so they are actually pretty common especially if you live right next to the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> okay, so a little, a little brain break here for everybody. Um, my, uh, my son usually gets up and does some kind of dance party with the, 
with the music, but what we'll do is the case. So this, so this case here is a middle-aged woman who, um, who worked at the secretary in a church. Uh, she worked part-time, so five hours a day, and a week prior to presentation, um, her husband noticed she was uh, fatigued, um, and then uh, she had some odd behavior. Specifically, she fell asleep in her car in the parking lot of the church. Um, and usually she was a very active person, sort of go-getter type person. Um, so a week into this, she eventually developed a little bit of fever, nausea, vomiting, and she presented to the emergency room. And she was diagnosed with a viral syndrome, given some phenergan, and, um, and sent home. But the following day, she refused to get out of bed, and the husband brought her back. At that time, she was admitted, and she was given some antimicrobials and diagnosed. She had, um, well, I'll ask you guys. So what are the, at that point, what are the three things that you would do for this lady? And obviously, you have a big clue because you have the MRI here. Yeah, you would start antimicrobials and probably antivirals, given the fever, encephalopathy, et cetera. Um, you'd get a CAT scan. In her case, it was normal initially, which is not uncommon. Um, and then a lumbar puncture to look at the CSF. Um, and so that wasn't done initially for her, but eventually she did develop uh, seizures and um, became more obtunded, intubated, and, and transferred to us. And this is her MRI. Um, and so what I really like about this is that it's like a picture-perfect MRI uh, where there's this temporal lobe hyperintensity on flare and then this uh, sort of um, orbital frontal hyperintensity. What is this? It's just the, yeah, and it tends to have that tropism for the orbital frontal lobe. Um, it's sort of uh, like all herpes viruses, it's just kind of um, dormant, and, um, and, uh, and the hypothesis is that it travels through the nasal mucosa into the brain. Um, so that's a very typical picture for HSC. Unfortunately, this lady, she ended up getting a cyclovir eventually, but by the time she came to us, uh, there had been such a delay in treatment that she ended up developing uh, refractory status, and then after about a month, um, care was withdrawn, and, and she died. Um, so, um, so there are a number of viral etiologies, known and unknown, um, but I really wanted to fo focus really on a couple that are the most common, starting with uh, the herpes viruses. You know, I've heard um, people that are smarter than me say, there's uh, there's two types of encephalitis. There's herpes encephalitis, and then there's everything else. And so, and that's really uh, probably true because it's the only one we have an actual treatment for. Um, that without it, you tend to do much worse. Um, so you should have a really sort of very low threshold for starting treatment for herpes. Um, and then uh, for herpes simplex, and then there's herpes zoster, um, and then these others that tend to. Uh, affect patients that are immune compromised more than the immune competent adults. So here it is, the HSV 1 and 2. And it used to be that we thought HSV 1 was the only one that uh, caused encephalitis. So the truth of the matter is that we've seen both HSV 1 and HSV 2 um, at this point. Um, it is the most common cause of encephalitis in the United States, unless you live next to Mayo. Um, and um, it was universally fatal or almost fatal before acyclovir. And as I mentioned, delaying the treatment um, can have some really important implications as far as morbidity and mortality. Um, it's, um, it's a leukocyte predominant uh, uh, or um, lymphocyte predominant pleocytosis, and the PCR um, 
can usually be negative early in the course. That happened with the patient I just, uh, the case I just described, where initially when the lumbar puncture was done, it was early enough in her course where um, she had only two whites in the CSF. And so the tendency there is to say, oh, this must not be herpes. Uh, but um, but uh, remember that uh, usually within the first 72 hours, you can have a negative PCR, particularly if the CSF does not have very many whites. Um, the viremia just hasn't developed, and the PCR, although it is extremely sensitive, upwards of 95% and specific 98%, there, this is a circumstance where if the PCR is negative, you would want to repeat the lumbar puncture in three days to confirm that. If your index of suspicion is high, you would continue your treatment and repeat the lumbar puncture. Um, and then um, another um, important clue um, Many patients are febrile on admission. Not everybody, but many are. So a lot of people, you know, I've heard people say no fever, no HSV encephalitis, but um, I have seen people uh, present without fever and then develop fever in the hospital. Um, and um, in about um, greater than 80% of the cases, there's abnormal brain imaging. Um, and largely, HSV is a temporal lobe disease. So the symptoms are referable to the temporal lobe and inferior frontal lobe. Um, uh, transcranial amnesia, aphasia, uh, language impairments, bizarre behavior. Those are the things that you would be looking for um, and that would sort of be symptoms referable to the temporal lobe that you'd want to think about HSV really hard. Um, the, the converse of that is that there are some people will, which will have, you know, um, normal brain imaging. And so you also have to take that into consideration. Um, particularly if they're having some of the symptomatology and the brain imaging is, hasn't really kept caught up to that. Um, BCB is another one that uh, tends to be a disease um, that uh, is sort of the second most common cause. It tends to be a disease of the young, the elderly, and the immune compromised, although we do see it in some immune competent people. Um, the, um, with the Zoster vaccine, it's less common in younger people, but in those of us that have had chickenpox, it just lives dormant in the dorsal root ganglion, and it can go one of two ways. It can, can travel out into the skin and cause a rash, or it can travel into the nervous system and cause any myriad of nervous system, central nervous system problems, myelopathy, or it can cause a radiculopathy, myelopathy, and even encephalitis. Um, and... Um, one of the things, you also have to have a high index of suspicion here um, because uh, there, sometimes patients will not have a history of a rash or will have a rash that occurred maybe three months before. So you sort of have to ask, ask and, and inquire about that. You don't necessarily need to have that uh, zoster rash in order to make this diagnosis. Um, and the, if you suspect that, the next thing you would want to do is they usually present with a small, medium, or large vessel vasculitis. So you'd want to look at some blood vessel imaging, either with a CTA or ideally with a, with a conventional angiogram, a catheter-based study. Um, and just, again, be cognizant that not everybody will have vascular narrowing that's evident on imaging, but that's one clue. Um, and in most cases, you would want to do uh, um, a lumbar puncture um, to look for a pleocytosis. Um, the one piece of information I'll give you here to make this diagnosis, and I see this often with our residents, is that they send their PCR to look for VZV in the CSF, and it's incredibly insensitive, um, incredibly insensitive. It's really not a helpful study, unless the patient is, um, 
immune compromised in some way, and they really don't have the B cells to mount an antibody response. To and so in that case, your, your best option is to check a PCR. Um, but for the most part, you need a VZV IgM and a CSF in order to make this diagnosis. Um, I'm going to skip this one. Okay, so another case here. So this is um, a healthy, recently retired gentleman in his mid-60s uh, with AFib uh, on a Pixaban who woke up with a headache one day. Um, and then his headache worsened throughout the morning. Um, eventually, he developed some shortness of breath and went to an emergency room. Um, when he arrived in the emergency room, he did have a fever. Um, and they noticed that he progressively developed, became more encephalopathic and had slurred speech. So he was admitted for a stroke workup, and he had a head CT and MRI um, and carotid dopplers that were normal. And then he continued to worsen and progress with more slurred speech, and then eventually developed some focal seizures, declined, intubated, and transferred to us. Um, then when we um, when we evaluated him. Um, his wife reported that he'd recently retired and they had their first grandson. This is a picture of, with their permission of the baby. Um, their first grandson was born and they were taking care of the kid. And he had this, uh, he had fever and this little rash on his hands and a little rash on his feet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so this is enterovirus, yeah. Um, and in general, on the... On the CT, there was really um, there was really nothing remarkable or nothing that was very subtle. Um, and then on MR, you see on flare that there's this so-called signal here that's abnormal, a sort of bright signal um, that that shouldn't be there. But again, you know, to, to if you sort of glanced at this, you would not think this was tremendously abnormal, but it is. Um, and when we did a lumbar puncture on him, he had upwards of like 150 cells in his CSF, and his coxsackie uh, was positive in the CSF. Um, so um, on to arboviruses, uh, which are, come, the word arbovirus comes from arthropod-borne viruses. So the vectors are these arthropods, typically mosquitoes and ticks. Um, the most common that we see in this area is West Nile. Um, but there's these other ones depending on the region of the United States um, and the, um, um, that, that are also considered. And most of the time, we'll send an arbovirus panel, which will include all of these. Um, um, but if you suspect West Nile, there's some directed testing you can send for that as well. Um, and this is really just put here to remind me that um, uh, the reason that West Nile, so the, the, um, the mosquito that we have in the, in the northern part of the United States is this Calix mosquito, the vector, uh, and that's why West Nile, St. Louis um, are the ones that we tend to uh, see in this area, the ones that are transmitted by those mosquitoes. Um, they're also seasonal because that is the vector necessary to transmit this arboviruses. Um, things like Zika um, can affect places in the south of the United States. I think there's been a couple cases in Florida and Texas. But because this mosquito doesn't live in our area, it's unlikely to spread to us. Um, and, um, and you can see here, uh, this, again, is that review article. So if you wanted to look at this more closely, um, you have that reference. Um, um, and as I, I mentioned, um, if you're arboviruses are seasonal. So if you encounter a patient in early spring to summer, um, that's more tick season than mosquito. And then sort of summer to late, you know, early fall, that's more mosquito season. So you can sort of 
modulate your index of suspicion based on the time. And here's the West Nile virus um, uh, cases um, based on season. So you see, like in us, here we tend to see most of our West Nile cases August, September. Um, and it, uh, and, the, um, and, and, um, and this is an older slide, but what I wanted to show you is that the first case of West Nile was diagnosed in New York in 1999, um, and apparently it came via some ship, and um, it's uh, obviously, as that other slide showed, um, the birds have the highest viremia, and then they sort of serve as the, um, the transmitter to uh, sort of the, the host, and then the mosquitoes transmit to us, and then it tends to be terminal when it arrives at us, or the virus, rather, tends to be terminal. Um, but then it spread very quickly throughout the United States because of what I mentioned, which is that we have the correct vector. Um, uh, and then what happens, uh, what's happened throughout the years is that there's ups and downs, and sometimes we hear about West Nile and sometimes we don't, and that has to do with the herd immunity that develops. So once the West Nile is kind of everywhere, we all get infected. Many of us are asymptomatic or have a very benign febrile illness like in the late summer, and then, and then that's it, we're protected. But then new people come, and then the virus again uh, picks up. Um, so as I mentioned, most infections are benign. Um, it can be it's acquired through mosquito bites, but also blood transfusions and some reports of transplant patients getting them. Um, it's really not very common for it to be neuroinvasive or cause encephalitis, but it can um, in about 1 in 50 cases. Um, when you have encephalitis, it tends to be in the people who are older, immune compromised. Um, and this is another situation where the PCR is tremendously insensitive. Um, and the way that you make this diagnosis is a West Nile-specific IgM in the CSF. Um, another way you can do it is to do like two sets of seral, of, ser of cultures, like an acute and a convalescent serum culture, um, and then you would look for the for the um, for the increase in the IgM or something like that. Um, but that that's how you make this diagnosis. And so, again, to sort of emphasize that seasonal change, you can see down here in the cream color is HSV, which has no seasonal variability, and then the rest of the encephalitides uh, tend to have some peaks in the summer months. Um, arboviral, West Nile, and then just interestingly to point out viral NOS, uh, which also tends to peak in the summer months. So there must be some other arboviruses that we're either testing for imperfectly or not testing for. Um, which are causing uh, encephalitis. Uh, okay, another brain break. So, um, what's this one? <laughs> what? Temporal lobe, HSV. Yeah. What about this one? VZV. Yeah. So this is sort of vasculitic, the deep white matter. Um, Infections. This is CMV, which tends to have some ependymal enhancement. Um, all the arboviruses cause, uh, or the arboviruses tend to have a tropism for the basal ganglia, for the deep nuclei. So patients with arboviral infections tend to have that sort of deep nuclei affected. Um, this is a patient with HSV, which tend, they tend to have this very, conf, in advanced disease, tend to have these very confluent um, white matter changes. This is PML. Um, this is ADEM, so post-infectious um, encephalitis. Um, and this here is enterovirus. Um, and again, on the CAT scan, it's very subtle. The arrows here are pointing to a little bit of focal effacement. 
these sulci are very obvious over here and not so much, so there's a little bit of edema. And then you get an MRI and you see this flare signal here and that's, um, that's enterovirus. Um, and then autoimmune encephalitis um, are the other common cause of encephalitis. Um, they tend to present with subacute progressive memory deficit, psychiatric symptoms, abnormal movements. And they're associated with a variety of autoantibodies, as you all know. Um, there's both cell surface and intracellular antigens. And the reason that's important is that it matters as far as the diagnosis and, um, and the prognosis as well, because the cell surface ones tend to respond to immune suppression, but the intracellular ones do not respond as well. Um, there is um, a, um, a, a case definition or a diagnostic criteria that can be used. I think the reason I, I put this here mainly is so that you guys understand that a diagnosis can be made without the detection of the actual antibodies. So you can have a subacute onset of um, cognitive impairment and, and or psychiatric symptoms, and then at least one of the following things, CNS, uh, focal findings, seizures, a CSF pleocytosis, an MRI feature suggestive encephalitis, and exclusion of infectious or other reasonable causes. Um, and you can make this diagnosis of probable autoimmune encephalitis and initiate treatment. Um, and the reason is that the number of antibodies that, are, that cause this condition is just growing and growing and growing exponentially. And many of them are just being nearly identified or we can't test for. So we usually would send a, an autoimmune encephalitis panel. Um, and if that comes back negative, but your index of suspicion is still high, um, the patients do benefit from a trial of immune suppression treatment. Um, the earlier you offer that treatment, the more likely they are to do well. And this review, I believe, is also in your references, um, you can look at. Um, these, this this um, table, which has a lot of information, um, uh, these are the most common causes of autoimmune encephalitis that we see in the ICU with their features and um, and their treatments down here. Um, you have this in your references, so I'm not gonna read. I'm gonna talk about an NDA receptor encephalitis uh, in the interest of time. Um, so uh, this is by far the most common cause of autoimmune encephalitis. They tend to present with psychiatric changes, seizures, abnormal movements, um, oral facial dyskinesias, and autonomic instability, which is the primary reason why they end up in an ICU. Um, it's, as I mentioned, an antibody-mediated process. It's an extracellular epitope to the NMDA receptor. Um, it's associated with ovarian teratomas in uh, females. Um, and uh, the important thing to know here is that the sensitivity uh, of the antibody uh, testing is 15% higher in CSF than in serum. So if you suspect this, um, you should send both the serum uh, panel and the CSF panel if you can. If your suspicion is high, you most certainly should send the CSF panel. Um, in fact, in most cases of autoimmune encephalitis, it's reasonable to send both because there are some types of autoimmune encephalitis where the serum is more sensitive than the CSF and vice versa. Um, um, another important thing to point out is it really is the most common cause of encephalitis in children, and that's been shown now in several um, uh, studies. Um, and, um, and more importantly, there's a, a mounting um, amount of evidence that uh, autoimmune encephalitis developed after a viral encephalitis, uh, particularly herpes. Um, so there's... Um, a number of uh, publications that have shown uh, case series of patients with diagnosed HSV encephalitis who, after a couple of weeks, have not improved 
or have a recurrence of symptoms um, and the PCR at that time on repeat lumbar puncture is negative um, and the autoimmune um, encephalitis panel returns with an MDA receptor positivity. Yeah. Now, be aware, though, and I will acknowledge that in some cases, patients with HSV encephalitis can have an MDA receptor antibodies that are positive in the CSF, so the immune system is triggered to generate them, but they're non but they're not clinically relevant, meaning the patient continues to improve and does well. So we really don't understand what the risk factors are. There's, there's, it's required that the antibodies be present for you to develop this disease, but there's more than that. Same way that people can have ovarian teratomas and never develop autoimmune encephalitis or NMDA receptor encephalitis. Um, yeah, and I think that's what I just said. Um, okay, so we have just a little bit of time left, um, and I want to quickly go over uh, the etiology, diagnostic, standard diagnostic approach, talk a little bit about treatment of seizures and superfactory status, which tends to be common, and then some other emergent issues. I don't think I'll get to outcome. So, um, so we've talked about the clinical profile, and then there's the paraclinical data, the CSF, the serology, MRI, and EEG, so that you can arrive at a differential. Um, you want to take a careful history. You want to think about uh, this not as a shotgun approach, although I will mention a new type of testing, which which is a little bit like that, unbiased. Um, and um, and so you want to remember, as we talked about, the sensitivity and the specificity of the test you send. I often will get reports from residents about how this is not, um, you know, this is not West Nile because the PCR is, is negative, and and they, you know, you have to kind of have an understanding of what the sensitivities are and what you're testing for. Um, and one of our biggest um, pitfalls or problems is that we send all the tests and then we don't know how to follow them up or we think they've been sent and then we never, we never sent them or the lab never sent them. So that's always a challenge. When you're trying to um, exclude things and you're sending out a myriad of tests, you want to keep good track of them. Um, and so the things about the history that would be important is age, season, we talked about geographic location, travel, and exposure history, contacts with animals and um and or other sick persons um, in the area, occupations, hobbies, hobbies, recreational activities. We go nuts with this. You know, we get so excited when people tell us they have, you know, snakes in their basement or that the person's a vet, a large animal vet that got bitten by some kind of wild cat. You know, those kinds of things like, you know, it's like, oh, maybe this is not HSV and it's something else. Uh, but um, but then, nonetheless, we don't get discouraged. We always ask all this stuff. Um, and obviously, reasons to, someone might be immune suppressed because your workup is a little bit wider if that's the case. Um, and so clues on the physical exam. So um, I'm sorry, this is really a long list, for more, more for your reference than for me to read out to you. But if you have lymphadenopathy, HSV, if you have peritidis mumps, um, if you have the right, uh, rash, HSV or HHV6, um, enterovirus, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, your respiratory symptoms, the equine encephalitis, the influenza, and retinitis, CMV, and VZV, and sometimes West Nile. Um, on the neurologic exam, as I mentioned, um, the um, arboviruses tend to have atropism for basal ganglia, so there tends to be um, some movement disorders uh, and um, uh, ataxia, um, uh, Parkinsonism. Um, with HIV, we see a lot of dementia, and cranial nerve palsies um, can't present with Lyme, HIV, PZV. Uh, rhomboencephalitis, I always think listeria, but, um, and some of the enteroviruses and TB. So what is necessary for the initial evaluation? I would say most of these are, are expected, to, that's sort of the basic work of the first year. 
um, you get your CSF, you want to get an opening pressure, whites, reds, protein, glucose, your gram stain, your cultures, your HSV 1 and 2, BCV, and as I mentioned, consider the IgM if you really suspect this. Um, your enterovirus PCR is always helpful because it's very common and, um, and it tends to have a fairly benign course, not like the case I presented, but, you know, it's, it's a very common cause of a, of a, a CSFP cytosis, like a meningitis, also very common. Um, cryptococcal antigen. And then we tend to get oligoclonobands and IgG index because this helps us with the diagnosis of autoimmune encephalitis um, and a VDRL in the CSF. Syphilis is very common in this region. Um, and then, um, Routine blood cultures, when, for anyone who's febrile, makes sense. Um, HIV serology and uh, syphilis, uh, triponemal testing. Um, because by definition, if there's CNS involvement, it's a late, late manifestation of, of syphilis in the perineoplastic panel. Plus minus on this, I, I'd say that, you know, the clinical history is really going to guide you there. I'm not advocating for spending tons of money on everybody who's encephalopathic and has a fever. But, um, but if the history is right, it makes sense to send it at this point. Um, it takes a couple of weeks to come back, part of the reason. Um, and then there's imaging, and, you know, standard test imaging. And EEG, if you suspect subclinical seizures or to exclude subclinical seizures or subtle, or subtle focal motor seizures, which might be present. Um, and um, if there's something else like a rash or there's some other tissue that you think you might get a diagnosis from, it's worthwhile exploring that as well. And then there's a ton of conditional studies based on the history and the location. And I, I don't want to um, read all this stuff out so that we have some time for questions. But um, geographic region and host factors, like seasonal exposure might clue you into some things. Um, obviously, if the history is right and there's psychotic features and MDA receptor encephalitis, um, rabies and rapid decompensation of rabies is the first thing you should think of. Um, uh, West Nile uh, often presents with this acute flaccid paralysis. We've seen that a lot in our unit, um, or not a lot, but we've seen plenty of cases. Um, and uh, and some other laboratory features that might clue you into things like if you have elevated transaminitis, um, uh, rickettsia, um, and uh, if you have hyponatremia, think of autoimmune or or TB. And the imaging features, which we kind of covered when we did that little quiz. I'll just skip this part here. In the CSF, there's a couple, you know, I, I did say that the CSF is one of many other clues that it's going to sort of help you develop a differential. Um, but there's a couple of things that, that are worth noting in the CSF that might help you. Um, if it, the glucose is very, very low, we tend to think of sarcoid or fungal processes, a malignancy or TB, like malignancy like lymphoma. Um, if the protein is very, very high, we think of TB or a, a obstruction. Sometimes people have um, obstructions in the flow of CSF that can cause the protein to be high in the lumbar region. Um, if it's all lymphocytes, um, viral, TB, syphilis line. If the PMNs are elevated, obviously bacterial. Um, and you can sometimes see it in HSV, West Nile. Um, if it's hemorrhagic, we tend to think of HSV, at least the textbook say so. Um, we do see sometimes elevated reds, but the truth of the matter is that now that we have um, a cyclovir as a treatment, people don't develop, or hopefully don't develop these really necrotic temporal lobe lesions that led to sort of hemorrhagic CSF. Um, and um, we tend to rely on the lactate to clue us into bacterial processes, particularly in patients post-neurosurgically because they tend to have uh, profiles that are have are inflammatory by virtue of having had surgery, so we use this lactate to help us out. 
Um, and then in some cases of fungal infections, um, we, we rely on the uh, beta deglutin. And um, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, the ramosomal RNA. So, um, but for fungal infections, if you suspect those, uh, because they're d difficult to grow in, in culture, um, those are the things that we said. I don't know why I forgot this. Um, for bacterial infection, you would want to, these are some of the clues you'd want to, you'd want um, to think about. Um, uh, and the reason I, I put this here is because obviously when patients first come in with fever or encephalopathy and you suspect an encephalitis and you do um, a lumbar puncture and uh, the CSF is inflammatory, you would want to cover for both bacterial and, uh, and HSV. Um, but you also want to try to de-escalate based on information provided. So, um, so what I kind of wanted to say is that, you know, they, the cultures tend to, bacteria tend to grow in culture unless the person's already been treated. Um, or so they have partially treated CSF, which is less likely to grow. Um, and there's some nice PCRs that we're going to talk about that allow us to make these diagnoses really quickly so that we can de-escalate. Um, and again, the ribosomal RNA, the ribosomal RNA um, um, can, can be useful if patients are partially treated. Uh, I'll quickly mention this because uh, so a normal CRP is another test, the technique that we'll use, or serum placacetonin, um, to help us differentiate between viral bacterial. Um, and so uh, what we have available here is this multiplex panel, the BioFire panel that goes to ARUP. Um, and so um, it amplifies DNA, RNA, and you really only need about half a cc of CSF for this test to occur. Um, usually... Um, we have the equipment to do it here for other things, so hopefully in the future we'll be able to get it done within an hour. But because it's a send-out test, it takes about 24 hours for us to get the results. But that's still pretty quick, considering it just needs some don't come back the same day, even though we process them here. Um, and so um, it contain it tests for 14 different organisms: six bacteria, E. coli, H. flu, Listeria, Neisseria, Strep, and Streptomo. Um, and seven viral CMV, enterovirus, HSV1 and 2, HHV6, uh, paracuvirus and VZV, and then cryptococcus. Um, the sensitivity and specificity right now is anywhere between 85 and 100%, and it just depends on the organism. Um, and obviously, if you suspect one of these, like if I suspected HSV, because these are arrays, the sensitivity and specificity is not the same as if I did conventional um, agent-specific testing. And so I would still want to send my HSC 1 and 2 testing PCR in addition to sending this biofire. Um, and um, again, this is in your reference, but sort of tiers it in those approaches. So you, your first tier is what we talked about, sort of the first tier workup, basic workup. And then if nothing comes back then, you would add the second tier and then third tier and, and so on, depending on the risk factors, et cetera. Um, for bacterial and fungal um, uh, possibilities, we we sometimes use the 16S ribosomal um, RNA, um, and the sensitivity here is 94% specificity, 94%. Um, and um, it can be positive in cases where the cultures are negative. And as I, you know, one of the pro probable reasons this happens is because of pretreatment. So if we're giving antibiotics or antimicrobials prior to the um, CSF being collected and sent to culture, um, the kind of rule of thumb is that, you know, 85% get, 
then after four hours, 73, for eight, 11 percent. So the culture positivity goes down after treatment. And so if, if that's your situation and you suspect that someone has an infection, but perhaps the organisms are no longer viable to grow in culture, this might be a way of testing for that. Now you have to be cognizant of some potential um, false positives too. But in general, this is, this is one test that we have available to us. Um, the other one is this um, <laughs> brain biopsies, um, which most common diagnosis for brain biopsies is uh, encephalitis of unclear origin. So you're no better off than if you hadn't done the surgery. Um, but that's changing with this next generation sequencing. It's really augmenting the capacity to make a diagnosis from tissue. Um, and I just wanted to talk to you guys. We also have this testing available. How, how many of you have sent this for patients with encephalitis at this point? Um, we've been asked a couple of times, you know, but um, it's what we call hypothesis-free testing, which I guess is a euphemism for the uh, shotgun approach. No. <laughs> so basically, it's the, it's the converse of what we normally do. You think of the pathogen, and then you send the test specific for that pathogen. The way this works is you take the material, the brain biopsy, the CSF, um, and it contains human and pathogen DNA. Um, and then you expand all, so this is what we normally do, target specific PCRs. We take that sample and we take the, we amplify the PCR for the particular pathogen that we're looking for, and then positive or negative, yes, no. Um, the way that this works is that it, uh, it um, expands the entire DNA of both the human and the, on the pathogen. And then um, it, um, it, it, uh, um, and so then it, it computationally removes the human DNA from the, from the sample. Um, and then it sort of puts all of this DNA that's left over together and, again, computationally um, compares it to known sequences. And then um, it, there's a list of pathogens there. There's a threshold that's pretty high for, as you can imagine, for calling something positive because there's going to be little remnants of everything. Um, in that sample, um, and then based on the relative abundance of whatever the DNA is, um, they assign a probability that the sample, that this is a clinically relevant um, organism. Um, and this has really helped us identify some um, cases where we were, were, would have been unable to make a diagnosis before. Um, this is a publication from last year that looked at this for the evaluation of meningitis encephalitis, and so they demonstrated that in 104 cases, of unknown etiology, they were able to eventually make the diagnosis with um, MNGS um, in some cases and conventional testing. In some cases, there was overlap where they were able to confirm with conventional testing. Um, what I'll say about this is, is that this is not um, superior to other testing like cultures or uh, PCRs or antigen testing. Um, it just depends on the clinical scenario. Um, you wouldn't want to send this as your first approach at, at, at trying to identify um, something for the same reason that, say, for example, uh, PCR for West Nile is not a good way to get, check for West Nile. Um, the same would be the case for this. You know, if there's West Nile DNA in your sample, um, first you may not detect it because the, 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 the viremia is very transient, and, uh, and, and secondly, um, you you want to know whether or not you want that IgM to understand whether or not IgM is really not produced intrathecally. So if you find it there in the CSF, you know for certain that this person has West Nile, neuroinvasive West Nile, um, if that makes sense. Um, 
And obviously, if you have like a brain abscess or something, obviously culture is far superior. Oh no, we ran out of time. So I don't need to tell you guys how to manage patients who are critically ill. Um, for the empiric treatment, a cyclovir, um, and then you want to empirically treat with antimicrobials, and when you acquire processes, vancomycin, cefraxone, and then you add these things depending on the clinical situation, rickettsial, saxocytron, ampicillin for listeria, at risk factors, older people, uh, people who are immune compromised, and post-neurosurgical, you want to give cefepime to cover for um, and then if you suspect an autoimmunology, go ahead, give methylprednisolone. Like, uh, um, you don't want to wait a week before you do that. Um, uh, if the CSF is inflammatory, but you've excluded bacteria as a cause, there's very little harm in, in, in proceeding with this, and we tend to do this very early. Um, and status epilepticus is a topic for another, um, for another uh, lecture, so um, I'm going to over that and the ketogenic diet which we tend to use and what I'll say is that patients about 30% of patients who come in with encephalitis require ICU care end up developing refractory status epileptic so this becomes a challenge for us um, and a major um, a major factor for prognosis and treatments are all over the place there's no right answer if you develop cerebral edema you're in trouble um, um, there's really, you treat cerebral edema with the osmotherapy, but there's really no great answer here. Decompressive surgery is in the realm of case report, case series at best. Um, and, you know, in this one case series that looked at uh, case reports that have been published, there was a favorable outcome, but you can imagine the publication bias here. And finally, just to sort of review what we've covered um, in 30 seconds. Um, you want to, in parallel, initiate your diagnostic evaluation, initiate your um, antimicrobials, um, and then um, try to uh, try to identify if there's any other causes of morbidity, mortality, treat cerebral edema, treat status epilepticus, um, and um, and give it time. Um, and because these patients tend to be young. Uh, and have no other comorbidities for the most part, there's a very good chance if you give good critical supportive care um, and offer early treatment that there, there could be a positive outcome. And I'm going to stop there. Thank you. It's already two, but I don't know if there's any questions or anybody, any comments. Alrighty. Thank you. diagnostic challenge you know we've had a number of cases of young people who you know presented to EDs uh, 
you know, with their first psychotic break in their late teens and twenties, and appropriately reported, oh, you know, I smoked marijuana or I did some ecstasy or whatever, and they all pointed in that direction and made sense. And then they were treated and went home, and then this thing just progressed and progressed. And you know, that's the part that's I think more concerning. And eventually, what ends up bringing these people to the neuro ICU is that they have seizures. <laughs> yeah, once that happens, then you know, like you, you know, you're not, you're not dealing with the first psychotic break. But um, one of the things that I, um, you know, and obviously this is even worse than a lumbar puncture, but um, there's a number of other clues. Um, remember the the diagnostic criteria include like abnormal imaging, full neurologic deficits. Were, it's not just psycho, like like alteration of mental status or psychosis is, is required, of course. But then, then you need you need something else. Um, no, no. Um, this um. So I guess you have to look here because I don't think it's projecting over there anymore. But um, but uh, but um. But they tend to have that sort of limbic picture where the medial temporal lobes, so the medial temporal lobes have. And then another thing that's been reported is using PET, which again, it's not very cost effective, but <laughs> PET, <laughs> PET, um, people with, um, well, often we're sort of faced with that question and, um, is it an infectious process or is it an autoimmune process? And PET has shown to be a good way of differentiating those or doing additional tests or two. Or at least it is for any data receptor sensor, uh -huh. like the bazillion mm -hmm. others that we're finding. I'm sure mm -hmm. they each have their own specific pattern. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, it's, yeah. I, I, in my mind, there's very little harm unless you're dealing with a, a like forward bacterial process in giving people immune suppressive therapy um, if you suspect an autoimmune process, um, you know, in conjunction suspect a viral process. Mm -hmm. Particularly if they're not getting better um, or they're getting worse, then it's worth giving them some steroids. Um, and we also, we also flex people very early, like a week into their course, we'll, We'll start after we've given them stairs, they're not better, they're still seizing. I mean, new onset refractory status epilepticus in a young person is is very commonly an autoimmune mediated process. And so we flex people very early in that context. Now, if they're in the ED and this is their first psychotic break, which is more common, just, just first psychotic really break. Yeah. Yes. For some kind of movement disorder, ah, anything else yeah. that could possibly put me off. Abnormal imaging, like yeah. yeah. And then MRI. If, if it's uh, if I get an MRI in the ED, they're going to murder me. <laughs> my psychotic patient, do they want to send them a video? Yeah, good luck getting an MRI. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Yeah. Yeah.